Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hang on, you've frozen. What? Oh, hello? Hello, hello. Hello. Oh, there we go. You're back. Uh, sorry, Minnie, I just... Um, Don't worry. It's live stuff. We've got takeoff. Clearance, clearance on the internet. That's great. Yay. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honored and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. 
You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today on Mini Questions is journalist Christiane Amanpour. I try not to be intimidated by the ideas I might have about the extraordinary people I interview on the show, but knowing I was going to be speaking to one of the great interviewers of the 21st century definitely gave me pause. I mean, Yasser Arafat hung up on her and Bill Clinton, well, he snapped like a cornered teenager. Christiane has won every major television journalism award, interviewed every single geopolitical player of the last 25 years, and her journalism made such an impact during the war in the former Yugoslavia that she was made an honorary citizen of Sarajevo. It's really important to say that this conversation was recorded before Russia started a war by invading Ukraine. The world looks very different today than it did three weeks ago. But I think the observations Christiane makes about conflict are eerily poignant. I really hope you enjoy this one. My first question is, can you tell me where and when you were happiest? (laughs) So I've thought about it a lot. And I don't think there's ever for anybody one particular place or space or time. I remember it in three steps, really. I had, I would say indisputably one of the happiest childhoods that I can even imagine. And that, you know, I've spoken to a lot of friends and asked them and just, you know, with osmosis and conversation as you go on, you know, you understand how people have lived their lives and what has made a difference and has shaped them. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say what I feel, which is that I am the luckiest person in the world. You know, I grew up in Iran of an English mother and a Persian father. My mom, Catholic, my father, Muslim. You know, it was a patriarchal and a non-democratic. It was a monarchy when I grew up there. So it had all those things that could have made it very stressful and difficult and hard and et cetera. And instead, it was just for such, I don't even mean freedom to roam and to range and to do all sorts of just freedom in my mind, in my heart, in my friendships. And with that freedom came this most incredible amount of happiness. And of course, when you're young, you don't really realize that that's what it is. You know, afterwards you get asked these questions. But when you're young and when you're a kid, I just remember everything being fun, whether it was playing with my friends, you know, in their houses or our houses, whether it was playing sardines, you know what that is? Hide and seek sardines. Everybody crams into one. Yeah. Yeah, That was really fun. Whether it was, you know, in somebody's garden and, and running around playing hide and seek. And especially riding horses, that was my sport. I was five years old when my mom and my dad literally put me on the back of a very large horse, not a pony, not a kid's game. And me and my best friend and my sister, that's what we did. That was our sport, not hockey or lacrosse or whatever. And that was really a source of happiness because you were sharing that happiness with each other. Your mother's was sitting in the corner chit-chatting and not being helicopter parents, but you knew that they were there, so that was nice. The riding instructor was this phenomenal Iranian guy who had been in the Iranian military, in the cavalry. So he was a brilliant old military man from the cavalry. And he was really compassionate and fantastic. He loved us kids. And we were girls, by the way. Remember, this is a really girls being taught how to be happy, how to be brave. And he just, you know, didn't let us wimp out. 
if we fell, if we had an accident or whatever, you know, he would make sure he dusted us off. But almost by the scruff of your neck, you'd be picked up and put back on the horse. And that developed a bond of love, a bond of courage, a bond of connection with another living thing from a very early age and an understanding of how you have to, you know, react and, and treat other living things, whether they're animals or whether it's nature, whether it's people. And it was just happiness. It was just a phenomenally happy childhood. First of all, I'm so glad that you had a wonderful childhood. <laughs> Do you think that that wonderful beginning girded you or gave you something that you were going to be able to use in all of the places of conflict that you would wind up, that all of the bloodshed and all of the disparity that you would live in for so many years of your life? Do you think that it gave you a base to be able to do that? I really do think so. I never really thought about it or dissected it, but I do believe in retrospect that that is actually what happened, that I grew up with phenomenal parents who gave me unconditional love and support, never overly demanding in terms of, I want you to be a doctor or a banker or this or that. We had to be moral. We had to tell the truth. We had to be kind. We had to have all those values, but we were good enough as we were. So that was very, very important. And that and the lessons I took from my writing instructor and from that period of my childhood, yes, gave me that backbone and that structure to carry on without really being conscious of it in the rest of my life, which has been, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's an extreme job that I've done, going to war zones, going to famines, going to natural disasters, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. Most people think you should run away. Well, we journalists like to say we run towards, but it takes a really important lessons and, and gifts from your childhood, because I can tell you that so many of the colleagues that I've come across have not been able to stand it. The extreme nature, the horror having to put yourself out there all the time has really crippled a lot of people emotionally and has sent them somewhat off the deep end. And I was just very fortunate that I was able to come back to my family after these terrible things into a happy environment, into a connected environment, into an environment where I was able to talk. I was able to think of something other than being on the road and being in the field. I could swap that darkness for the light of being away in this very happy, and I keep using that word because we're talking about happiness, happy personal environment. And that was very important for me. The other thing that was really important was growing up as the product of different ethnic groups, different nationalities, different religions, given that my parents came from two different parts of the world, allowed me to accept everybody and everything. Everything was normal. Nothing was other. So I went to all these different places and I just felt that they were just like me. You know, I never felt that I was in any way different or superior or inferior or anything like that. And that really, really helped me throughout my career because, you know, with this, we live now in the extreme version of partisanship and divisiveness. And, you know, the other is such a, not just a scary concept because it isn't, but it's used to scare people and to drum up fear and hatred and loathing. And I had the opposite. I grew up with the opposite lessons. And that really did see me through my career because I obviously covered all these ethnic conflicts and religious conflicts and battles. Yeah, the opposite of happiness. Yeah. I mean, really the apotheosis of happiness. Yeah. And so I was really happy doing my job. And I give you a little anecdote. I was so happy being a foreign correspondent. I really thought I'd died and gone to heaven when I was made a foreign correspondent. And one day, one of the 
the key anchors at the time, presenters, who was at CNN in Atlanta, she quit to go somewhere else. And the president of the network, the most phenomenal man, Tom Johnson at the time, it was 92. And I had just managed to get myself out of headquarters and into the field and doing the job that I really wanted to do. He called me up and he thought he was being incredibly, whatever, rewarding and kind to me and empowering. And he asked me if I would come back to Atlanta and take the job of this anchor presenter who had just left. Her name was Catherine Cryer. Honestly, I burst into tears. I was so upset. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I know this is meant to be a great promotion, but I'm so happy here. And this is what I've wanted to do. And I don't want to come back to be an anchor in Atlanta. I don't want to do it. But what if I say that, then are you going to fire me? Am I going to lose my, you know, my dream job. And he couldn't have been nicer. It did take me a couple of days to get back to him and tell him that I just couldn't do it. A lot of crying went on and soul searching. And I really expected him to say, well, thanks, Christiane. Well, if you can't do it, you have to get somebody else and you might as well pack your bags and leave. Absolutely the contrary. He just embraced me and he said, that's great. So I would say after my childhood, my time in the field was the place of maximum happiness. And then right now, my son, my child is my depository and repository of of maximum happiness. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? You know, I see love and I feel love very frequently. It's not just something that's compartmentalized or that I look at one or two people and think, oh, that's a great example, or that I have a friendship or a relationship with whoever and think that that's the paradigm. I get so much love that I hope I give as good as I get. And so it is obvious and it's a cliche, but it is absolutely true that my son is the human being that I love the most and who I love the most in the world. I didn't know whether I wanted to have children when I was in the field. Uh, I was late to motherhood. I was 42 when he was born. I had done everything I loved up until then. My job, my friends, the danger, the racing around the world, the doing, I hoped, a little bit of good for the world by the stories I told. The love that I felt came to me from many of the people who I reported on, who just were happy to be, you know, invited to talk and tell their stories to the world. I felt real love from people when they were in front of my camera. I'm not talking about leaders now. I'm talking about people who I would go and engage with on, on a daily basis, which I did for most of my career. That, that was what I did. I talked to people about what was going on in whatever crazy state of affairs in their particular part of the world. And I got a huge amount of love from that. And I was very happy and satisfied. And I know that I could not have done my work and loved it as much and put so much into it had I been married or had a kid at that time. And I consciously delayed that part of my life. And I didn't know whether I would ever have it. And I didn't grow up wanting to be a mother. That was not what was in my worldview or my you know list of, of goals to tick off. I didn't think I'd be a terribly good mother. I don't know why. I don't think I analyzed it much. But then when I had my son, now nearly 22 years ago, on a dime, it all flipped. On a dime. I mean, it changed everything in my life. And I am so grateful that I have that opportunity to give and to experience that kind of love. But then, you know, you see the humbling kind of love that people, I don't know whether they're nuns, whether they're NGOs, whether they're doctors, whether they're neighbors helping neighbors in the middle of a terrible ethnic cleansing in a war, the kind of love that strangers give to each other, the kind of, uh, it's just humbling to behold, the kind of 
total devotion that complete strangers can give to somebody in need is just an amazing thing to behold. And the kind of love that enables you to be so brave as to risk your own life to, let's say, shelter somebody who's being persecuted and has come to you for some kind of you know, help and to try to save their life. That's an amazing thing to witness. That must be such an extraordinary thing. I mean, I think of it reflected in the world that we're living in right now, where so much, particularly in the US, neighbor is against neighbor, or whether it's literally or the next state or the south or the north or the east or the west. The idea of being able to recognize there's a leveling that humanity will do if you let it of kindness and how love comes out of that. So seeing it firsthand, it must have been extraordinary in Sarajevo, in Iraq, wherever you were observing that. Because I've seen the opposite as well, you know, and I mean, Sarajevo, Iraq, but Rwanda and places like that, where neighbors were turned against each other. And the thing that infuriates me, Minnie, is that it is not the natural state of affairs. Even in the United States right now, even in our country here in the UK, you know, where there's so much division along mostly political lines, this has all been drummed up by leaders or people who call themselves leaders. It's the politics of fear and hate and division that have turned people against each other. If you can come together in places like Northern Ireland, which they did in order to have a peace process. It is not perfect, but they were able to do it. Mm -hmm. If you can do it in South Africa, when you've had, you know, the majority of the population of South Africa, you know, oppressed by a minority white supremacy organization under apartheid. And if you can come together like they did and like they have done, even though it's not perfect and it's not resolved and it's not over and history hasn't stopped just because apartheid fell, it means that we can all do it. We can all do it. In Sarajevo, I watched Serb citizens of the city of Sarajevo who refused to flee, refused to listen to Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic and all those fear-mongering, hate-mongering, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocidal maniacs refused to listen. Very few of them, the majority unfortunately did listen, but a few of them stayed and sheltered their Muslim neighbors and, and helped them. And it's remarkable. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that brings me to tears because it's such a deep love, so moral, so ethical and so brave. Do you think that that humanity, that that level of humanity, do you think that that, because you've you've seen it up close a lot, can ultimately triumph, if that's the right word, over the lack of morality in, in quotes, leadership from governments who would stoke that division to serve their own desires? Well, look, I, I hope so. I'm an eternal optimist. And I like to think that if I have, for, you know, 30 odd years witnessed the worst of the worst of humanity and of bad leadership and malign leadership, if I can believe that there is light at the end of the tunnel and people are people and left to their own devices, they will, you know, show their humanity and their love. I mean, sitting in Rwanda when they had their, it's called gachacha courts, they were sort of unofficial, I mean, courtrooms, but not really. They were in the outdoors. And you basically had a kind of a version of truth and reconciliation where the murderers would come and meet with the victims and the families of the victims. And they would talk about what they did and they would hopefully apologize. And then the victims would accept the apology. And I watched that when I realized that these are people who slaughtered each other with their bare hands and with clubs and machetes, you know, 800,000 to a million people dead in three months. And here they are sitting in this, you know, local court situation, truth and reconciliation of a kind and hugging each other and crying. So that gives me hope. Obviously it's possible. It's absolutely possible. But then you look at these leaders, even in the democratic world who we elect, who are elected because of the hatred and the division 
and the othering that they do and that they inculcate and the fear that they inculcate in people. And then I get very down and depressed and I wonder how that's going to stop. If they can other, then we can also unify. I mean, people can and will be unified. I do think the pendulum is swinging incredibly hard at the moment. I got to believe that balance will be redressed. I feel like historically it does. It takes a minute though. I agree. But you you must have seen that over and over again. I mean, it's part of why it's so fascinating hearing you talk about this because you've made a career of witnessing and reporting, literally, you know, and disseminating situations. So it makes me hopeful, even though we're all properly in it at the moment in both the UK and the US. I mean, obviously, and elsewhere. And elsewhere. That I agree with you on that. And I would say that witnessing, even witnessing is becoming harder and harder. Bernard-Henri Lévy, the French public philosopher, he has just written a book and he's done a documentary and, and he's entitled it The Will to See. Huh. The will to see. We have to sum up now, summon up the energy and the courage and the will to go out and see and witness and report and make sure these things don't go unnoticed. And the lack of will is quite profound right now in great swaths of society, not just in political leadership, but the lack of, of will to go out there and put yourself on the line and do the old fashioned, you know, job of being the eyes and ears and the feet on the ground so that you can bring back these stories. It's very difficult because everybody's now sitting in their armchairs, siloing in social media, thinking that they're living in a real world where they're not. They're in something that doesn't exist. Twitter's not a place, as Dave Chappelle said. You know, it's not a place. That's exactly it. Well, and it's also interesting that we, our clever monkey brains, have created these constructs that we then assign reality to and meaning to, but they are constructs. Mm -hmm. they, they don't exist. I mean, if ever the Matrix and the Wachowskis looked more prophetic in what they created in those films that, than what we're living in now, you know, I can't, I can't think of it. Mm -hmm. Because it's true, we have to be willing to see. Yeah. And it's very easy to not see and to just curate what you want to see on Instagram, for example, and then an algorithm that is also augmenting that. Exactly. It's fucking terrifying as a matter of fact. But then you go to the great, fantastic, phenomenal David Attenborough and you see what he's had the will to see. Yes. And he's still out there at 95 years old. I don't know whether you've seen The Green Planet. All your listeners, I hope, will go and see it because that is joy. That is love. That is hope. That is phenomenal. He enjoys this world. He really does. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowe, Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics 
in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women. And this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is the quality you like least about yourself? The inability to recognize my great good fortune. Sometimes, not always, because I usually always recognize it, but sometimes not taking enough time to take a few deep breaths when things are not going well and to sort of semi, I mean, panic is not quite the right word, but to go into that stage of fight or flight without really just taking a breath and resetting and understanding, you know, what I have on my plate, which is so much good fortune. And the other thing I don't like about Myself, is that I can be a bit righteous, Minnie, I'm afraid to say. I can be a little bit righteous. What do you get righteous about? By everything. But mostly, <laughs> <laughs> mostly, I like to think about b- the big things, you know, about genocide or not genocide, you know, the victim versus the aggressor, the human rights and all of those kinds of things, the things that we should get righteous and morally angry and therefore motivated to do something about. 
But sometimes I can bring all that righteousness into my, you know, everyday life and opine as if, you know, I was always right. In fact, I had a great friend and colleague <laughs> from the Washington Post. And he once told me when we were in Sarajevo, he said, you know, Christian, if you ever write a book, it can be titled, I was right. And of course, <laughs> you know, he was obviously being funny and sarcastic. I thought this was a brilliant title. He was, you know, quietly mocking me, but it is a funny anecdote. I do think you should write, I was right. <laughs> You know I'm not going to, <laughs> although I'm very often right. Let <laughs> me see. You've already got your forward to the book. No, can I tell you, there's quite a famous story about the producer of Dirty Dancing. This writer came up with the title Dirty Dancing. And then the producer basically bankrolled the whole movie just based on the title alone because they were like, this is the greatest movie ever. Oh, that's great. They work backwards from the title. So I was right can begin right here. Yeah, I think Dirty Dancing is a little better than I was right. But uh, I get it. I, I understand. I, thanks for the permission. <laughs> <laughs> You're so welcome. Can I just ask you really quickly, when you said not being able to see what's good or sort of panicking when something bad happens, do you ever, rather like a centrifuge, when something is going wrong, suck all these other bad things that might be happening yep. into that centrifuge? And so it kind of becomes exponentially bigger. And so the thing is never really the thing. It's about everything. Yeah. So in therapy speak, they call it catastrophizing. Is that what they call it? Yeah, they do. You know, you see something and instead of immediately figuring out, you know, this, we can fix this. We've got this. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, and then that's going to happen. And then that's going to happen. And then I'm going to fall under a taxi and die or something like that. Shit. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what do you do to not do that? Because uh, this is free therapy for me because you have clearly done, heard this word. Now, will you please tell me what you're supposed to do in those situations? It was time. It was a lot of time. And I have to say, going out into the real catastrophes yeah. that taught me how to differentiate between a catastrophe and catastrophe light. So I don't operate like this in the field. I am very calm, very intense and very together. I do not panic. Mm. I don't lose my cool. And I don't even know where that came from, maybe from the horse riding, but I'm very, very, very super focused when I'm in the field and danger is happening all around me. Or when I have to do an interview with a world leader and I just got to get it right. I focus and I'm laser focused. It's mostly in my personal life. <laughs> Oh, well, everything is mostly in. But wait, I remember when you, was it Arafat who hung up on you? Oh, yes, he did. Yes, yes. That was an extraordinarily poised conversation. There was no fluster at the end of it when he hung up. It was kind of fantastic. And it was almost the greatest third act that he, that he sort of could have come up with. It was pretty amazing. It was right. I remember exactly where it was. It was 2002. We were at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem and I had a satellite cell phone link to him as I was broadcasting live. And it was at a time when the then government of Ariel Sharon decided to go back into the West Bank. They tore down his headquarters and it was in response to some Palestinian suicide bombings inside Israel. And it was after 9-11. So you remember the state of affairs then was very, very tense. And Arafat, he was really being pushed into a corner. And I asked him something like, do you take responsibility for, and I named the suicide bombing location. And, and he just went ballistic. But I mean, ballistic. I'm here in a prison. They've got me surrounded. I am General Arafat. Do you know who? Shut 
up, he said to me. He literally shut up. He was so angry. And meantime, I know the camera's on me, right? So I'm live with the camera on me and I am going red from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. And I'm thinking the whole world is watching me being torn to shreds by Yasser Arafat on live television. And then he hung up and I'm like, okay, well, I said, I can't remember what I said, but some things, you know, that's live television, folks. And then, of course, all the producers loved it. Oh, it's great TV. It's great this. And I'm like, okay, but that was me being humiliated. But anyway, I got over it. That was Yasser Arafat and me. The thing is, like, I remember how calm you remained in the face of that rage. Mm -hmm. And you do it so acutely in your professional life. You have done that. But it's really interesting to hear that in your personal life, it's like it's more challenging. It's slightly more challenging. I'm a bit better than I was. But yeah, I just forced myself to stay cool and to not change my expression too much. Clinton did it to me as well in a live two-way from Sarajevo. I asked him a question that got under his skin mm. and he went, he said, there have been no constant flip-flops, madam. He maddened me in front of the world. And then my face just went beat red. But I'm not sure that you could actually recognize that over the satellite. So I had an advantage advantage, right? I was thousands of miles away, blushing and freaking out, but staying cool and not changing my expression. And then the funny thing was actually, every time I went anywhere after that, all these people who I would go and interview, you know, prime ministers and I don't know, army chiefs and this and that, madam, they would greet me with every time I went in. So it was a bit of a joke for a while. I think it's really interesting to like, to get to experience the best version of our response to stress and conflict and you can quite literally see you on television or on YouTube or whatever doing that thing, but taking it out of that place and applying it into our lives. I'm fascinated by why we can do it in some areas of our lives, but it's more challenging in others. Mm -hmm. And you do it in the place that you would think would be more challenging. It's a really interesting practice, but it just kind of seems to reiterate to me that life is all practice. It is. And then you got to, as one of my producers used to say, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. In other words, know who you're dealing with and when you're de dealing with. So you react a certain way at a certain time and different ways at different times. You don't want to bring all that mega sang-froid, you know, that cool under fire into your private life. You want to be more vulnerable, more open, more reactive, more, more, you know, more. <laughs> But it's quite a paradigm to exist in, to be able to move from an extraordinary place of conflict in the world back into home life and children and husband. And yeah, those are amazing poles to navigate. And again, I agree with you. And so many of my colleagues have not been able to navigate that and have suffered very, very deeply mm. from not being able to navigate. And, you know, so many people in many different professions obviously find that difficult and it is challenging and it does take lots of work. I would simply say again that I do believe the foundation that I was given as a child has helped me in every which way, every which way. I come back from these terrible times in the field or, or great times as well. I mean, and, and I reunite with my family. You know, family lunches, family dinners, friends, all of that's what keeps me human and keeps me alive and keeps me loving, keeps me happy, keeps me friendly because I stay alive. I don't close myself off. You know, the classic stories, right? Of, I don't know, your grandfathers, your grandparents or whoever in World War II, let's say. My father, my father flew in World War II. And he probably never told you, right? He probably didn't talk. Never. They never talked. And I understand it to an extent. And I don't talk war stories much, but I do talk. 
And I do, if somebody one-on-one, somebody wants to know about this, wants to know about that, I'll talk. But I do otherwise talk and open myself. You can try to bury it, carry on, make a new life, support their families and and try to to forget it. But truth is you can never forget. Mm. And there's always PTSD. Did you know in the Second World War they called, and it was in the First World War too, they called PTSD LOMF? which was lack of moral fibre. Oh, that makes me want to cry. It's awful. That was the acronym, which is why I think men didn't talk about it. Women didn't talk about it. That's really tragic. And how about you know, shell shock and, and, and yeah. all of that? And how about they treated the World War I conscientious objectors as cowards and, mm-hmm. and mentally deranged? I mm-hmm. mean, it's just tragic. Tragic. What person, place or experience most altered your life? I would say, I have to say, the Iranian revolution of 1979, because that completely was the division between my childhood and my adolescence and my adulthood. And in a way, overnight, I grew up and I grew a conscience and I grew a political uh, awareness and I grew an ambition and I grew maturity. And I just went from a very happy-go-lucky childhood, not knowing a huge amount about democracy and dictatorship and and all of those kinds of things and freedom and not really understanding what they meant in the big picture to only wanting to go and talk about that stuff and bear witness and report and tell those kinds of stories around the world to people who may not be able to go and see for themselves. And that for me was the most fundamental turning point in my life. Yeah. Wow. Were you living in Iran at the time? And did you move? Yes. So my education spanned Iran, the UK. And after the revolution, I went to the US for my university and I started CNN in the United States. But I had sort of got a (laughs) an involuntary gap year, Minnie. I had (laughs) failed to get good enough grades in my, what you would call high school here, A-levels to go to medical school. I feel you. Yeah, I feel myself right now or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I am so pleased because in the end, it's one of those failing to accomplish what you think you should have done that led me to this profession and to this life because it's not just a profession, it's my life. And so I'm very grateful for that. But I spent the whole year of the revolution. So from January, 1978 to... January 1979, watching this happen in my homeland and in my neighborhood. And suddenly everything I thought was right was wrong. The people who I'd grown up believing in were now the people who I should be condemning. I couldn't leave my house without there being soldiers and guns, you know, aimed at during martial law. You heard the Ayatollah Khomeini's imported, smuggled in cassette tapes put on the loudspeakers from the mosques nearby. I mean, chilling stuff. It was chilling and you just didn't know where it was going to end up. Well, now we know, right? I mean, the Iranian revolution shaped and changed the whole world. Would you say that was the first time that you were really aware of the division of ideology? Like there is another way of thinking that is being applied in this place that is so familiar that I thought thought one way. That's such an interesting way of putting it. And I would say yes, but I had known, obviously, because we were living through the Cold War and Iran was right in that place where, you know, the United States liked Iran as an ally because it was, you know, faced off against the communists and this and that. So in other words, everything that was happening politically at that time, particularly where I was living, was East versus West, communist versus the United States. Communism was, everybody grew up in my generation anyway, knowing that as the first big ideological issue. And then it was the Iranian revolution. I will say, interestingly, 
interestingly, and I cannot exactly remember. I probably could go back and figure it out. I can't remember whether it was just before the Iranian revolution or just after. But my parents, my mother particularly, had Palestinian friends in Iran. They were Catholic and she was Catholic and she met them at church. And they had been refugees. They had been turfed out after the 48 war. And they had found the way, their way to various places and ended up in Iran. He was a pharmacist and I can't remember what she was. Phenomenal people, phenomenal people. And from him, I remember him taking me on a visit to a museum and telling me the story of Palestine. And that was possibly my first real conversation about history divides and what happens when one side wins, one side loses, and when there's never justice and when this wound continues to be open. And so that was also a very early lesson. But then, of course, then I go to Bosnia and I witness genocide in Europe for the first time since the Second World War. So that was right in my face. I mean, I could have read about Anne Frank and I read the book, but I didn't see it and understand it until I saw it and understood it and reported on it and was called to make a judgment. And my judgment was that I would not be neutral in the face of outrageous violations of humanitarian law. I would not be neutral. I would not be an accessory to genocide as a journalist by being neutral. I insisted on telling the truth and it made me very unpopular in a lot of quarters. I remember it being apparently so controversial to take a position, but I didn't have enough political acuity to really think about that. But I do now, and it's astonishing to me that taking a position on genocide, that you would have been called partisan for that. It was, it's absurd now. It is absurd, absolutely. But remember, the victims were Muslims. They were European Muslims and the aggressors were European Christians. It was very, very tough. It's a very particular context that you then go out into the world to do what you do. And I think it's astonishing that you survived that, not just physically, but mentally. And I know you've said that so many people didn't. Well, to bring it back to what you've been asking me, I survived because of love and happiness and joy and knowing how to see it and how to recognize it and wanting it. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women. And this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What question would you most like answered? Ooh, many. I'm glad you didn't say what question would you most like to ask. Right now, I'd like to ask Vladimir Putin, why? What is your problem, mate? Why are you trying to bully a country that's done nothing to you? In any event. Uh, so what question would I most like answered? Look, you know, I think most people would like to know what happens on the other side. You know, is it worth it? being good and moral and loving and happy and doing all those things, you know, here. Ah, that's interesting. Is there a payoff? I don't really care because I like my life anyway. So I don't really care if there's a payoff or not. I, I like how you framed that. It's not what happens when we die. It's, listen, <laughs> did I really have to be good all the time in order to get access to heaven? This is the Catholic in me. <laughs> That's the Catholic in me. But you know what I would love to know, honestly, because I have this image that everybody who's gone before me, all my friends, my family, my lovely dog, everybody who's gone before me, they're up there having a nice time. You know, they're, they're also enjoying. And I'd like to go up and have a really nice time. And I hope that exists. I hope that exists, you know. Do you think that if you knew that was what was going to happen, do you think you would live your life differently? No, I wouldn't live it differently. <laughs> <laughs> All bets are off, I tell you what. No, no, there, there's certain things I wish I had done, you know, more boldly and, and maybe taken a few more risks here and there on, on more personal issues. But overall, I'm good. I'm good. 
I got, I got two more questions before you send me on my way packing. Yeah. I would like to know whether democracy and truth will survive. And I'd like to know whether we will ever live on another planet, you know, in another atmosphere, in another environment. Wow. I wonder if democracy will exist on another planet. Well, we can create it. I wonder if we did get to another planet, would we take all the same constructs of law and society with us or would we make amendments that could continue to be amended socially? I wonder. Well, I hope we would perfect something that we started here on Earth because we are in that moment, by the way. We're not just fantasizing you and I right now. Democracy is under threat by the very nations which perfected it or tried to. Well, they're just we're being reminded that it is an experiment. It is this experiment. And how about truth? What if there's no truth? That's the worst. That is literally the most terrifying thing. So I would like to know, will truth survive? And on that happy note, Minnie. And on that bombshell, <laughs> thank you so, so, so much. Well, thank you for having me. I'm not sure an answer to one of my questions has ever cut quite so close to the bone as Christiane's answer of what questions she would most like answered being whether truth and democracy will survive. It's been a hard two weeks to watch what's happening in our world. And I would like to say, and I wish I could say it to Christiane right here and right now, that the strange byproduct of what Putin has done is to actually unite the world, which I know he didn't intend. But nonetheless, bar quite literally a couple of countries, that is what he has done. And perhaps that's how truth and democracy will survive because we will unite. You can watch Christiane's one-hour late-night public affairs series, Amanpour, on CNN International and Amanpour & Co. on your local PBS station. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric 
I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.